Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host, Pat Bradshaw, and today it's my pleasure to introduce a special guest, is Peter Simon. So, Peter, thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure. Brilliant. So, um, as always, Peter, I think quite a logical place to start with these things, just to give everyone a little bit of context, is just a little bit of a journey to date, really, from your career. So, how you got into risk management, or as I always say, fell into it as people often do, a bit of a timeline of your career and, and up to the point what you're doing currently. And um, and yeah, fire away. Okay, well, way, way back in the last century, I started work as a planning engineer. A lot of people will know what that means. I worked for a large international construction company, mechanical, electrical, civil com- company. I didn't stay there very long because the oil industry was booming and I joined a a contractor in the oil industry and then after a little while in that I moved across to one of the oil majors and the last job I really did as a uh, proper if you like had a proper job was I worked for a large British petroleum company and while I was working there I in the building I was working in they held an APM risk SIG meeting I was already a member of APM. I've been a member of APM for a long time. And so I noticed some people coming in who I already knew. And they invited me along. And one of the people I met was Professor Chris Chapman of the University of Southampton, very charming man, very, very well known in the risk industry. And coincidentally, the reason why it was being held in the BP building was because they were uh, actively involved in risk management. And I was on the periphery of it as a planning engineer. I soon became a project services manager there and my role changed and I joined the RISSI. And it's from that point, which is way back in the 1980s, that I started getting involved in risk management. And ever since then, I've been actively involved in risk. I've been chairman of the APM RISC twice, written books, edited books, and been actively involved uh, throughout that part of my career. So it's it's a very long time. Um, today, I find myself helping people improve the way they manage risk, uh, but also helping them, uh, helping people to manage projects better, of which risk management is an integral part. I work part-time at uh, Cranford University, and the rest of the time I have my own small business where I, I do just what I've said, said there, and that's about it. Amazing. Amazing. Cheers, Peter. So, yeah, I was going to say we first crossed paths, I think it was a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Well, that's probably a few months ago now when I was first in my uh, my APM level two and you very kindly helped helped in my revision and uh, my preparation for that. And you passed. Yeah, first time. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, but yeah, no, thanks very much for that, Peter. I appreciate it. It's one of them, like I say, I always say on the podcast, it's always really fascinating to hear people's um, 
people's journeys into risk management because I've only been in the profession sort of a year or so um, and I'm 27 now so it's almost I feel felt as if I may be a little bit late to the party but um, like I say there's some of the people I've spoken to of absolute pinnacle of profession who may not have joined until the late 20s early 30s and even later in some instances and come from quite a convoluted background so so yeah no very interesting to hear. Perfect. So um, in terms of the topic we'll be discussing today, as, as everybody can probably tell from the title of the episode, um, we're going to be discussing upside risk management. Does it exist and, and is it a waste of time, basically? So, of course, I'd give everybody the option that comes on the podcast, Peter, to the opportunity to choose their own topic for discussion. So I was quite interested to hear from your perspective why, why you chose to, uh, to get stuck into this one today. I suppose there's quite a bit to the background of this, but not least uh, the work I've done initially with APM, where we published something called the Pram Guide. I think it was 1997, and I was what we call a managing editor editor for that. And as part of that, one of the things we emphasised and was that, in APM's opinion, also shared by PMI, PMI and others, is that risk can be both positive and negative. Yes. And PMI and others, including ISO 31000, have really stuck on the term opportunity and threat. And I understand that. Uh, it makes sense to me, but it doesn't always appear to make sense to others. And we'll talk about that um, later on. And in fact, there are times where I doubt in my own mind the, the relevance of some of the things I've talked about and written about for years. And I'm really at a bit of a crossroads now to see whether uh, what we do is appropriate, not on the management of traditional risk, negative risk, but more on the management of the upside. So that's why I thought it'd be a good time to talk about this. Excellent. Yeah, I think um, I think when I first started in risk management, I found myself falling guilty, uh, falling foul quite often of always focusing on the threat side of things. And um, at first I wasn't sure if it was just something that it's just human nature. You associate the word risk with uh, with something negative and, and it was just a bit of a hangover of that. But yeah, like, like you say, I think some of the research I've done into this episode and some of the conversations we've had, it's it seems that's, it's not just the case that it, it, it might be somebody who's sort of just new into the profession, but it might be sort of embedded into the profession a little bit further as well. Yeah. I think one of the issues there is that, a lot of the world that I've worked in, and I'm sure the world you worked in, Pat, and I know your colleagues work in it, is in what we might call heavy traditional industry with a, with a huge association, um, well, relevant association with, with health and safety. Yeah. And health and safety and risk never means a good thing. You're looking at the risks to someone's livelihood or to general safety, and therefore risk to those people doesn't always mean opportunity. However... In some of the research that I've done, if you step back into early 20th century, which as far as I've gone back, uh, literature in economics, it's quite clear that philosophically, perhaps that's the wrong word, people have always at a certain level considered risk to be good or bad, mainly based around things like investments, which can go up or down. So when people say certain things are risky, they don't always mean it's going to turn out to be bad. Yeah. Those risky things can turn out to be good. And that's really how project management has tried to take that. Risky things don't always have to be bad things. Excellent. Yeah. And, and um, we'll get stuck into to that in a, in a little while. But I think um, it'd be useful to start off, Peter, for the benefit of anyone listening who may not 
work exclusively in risk management or similar to myself sort of at the start of their career, just to give a little bit of context for the episode, really. So please, could you explain in, in your own words, really, what upside risk management is? Well, if, you know, the, the, I think you're aware of the definition that, uh, that some people use is a, a, a risk is an uncertain event that should it may occur, should it may should it occur, will have an impact on objectives, positive, positively or negatively. Yes. So if you take that further, uh, an opportunity or an upside risk or a positive risk is something that might happen, that if it happens would improve something in your project. And when we talk about projects, we tend generally think about improving the cost. So therefore it somehow becomes cheaper. We're improving the schedule. So somehow it makes it earlier or it does something to the performance that will make it perform better. So it's something that might happen that if it does, will improve one of your objectives. That's what an upside risk on opportunity is. Perfect. So I think um, in sort of preparation for this episode, we spoke about it briefly around the, the language of risk, really. So I'm aware of some inconsistencies in the way that in which language is used in this instance. So for example, some organizations may say threat versus opportunity. Some may say risk versus opportunity. I mean, is this particularly important? Uh, I, I don't want it to be important, even though uh, because I've written books on it and I, and I do a lot of work with APM, I keep mentioning that because APM are in the, in the world of threat and opportunity. Yeah, I think if you're going to look at upside risks or opportunities, whatever you want to call them, I think it's just more important you do it to get the benefit and whether you call them anything, it doesn't actually matter. Uh, and so many companies I work with do use the phrase risk and opportunity management. And I can live with that, but I do always point out to them that some people call it different things. And so you've got to know what it means. I don't want it to be a barrier, uh, yeah. but some, but I think sometimes it can be. That's the only issue. But just be clear uh, that they what we mean by a risk. And if we only use risk in the negative way, let's just stick to that, make that clear up front, and then opportunity becomes the upside. Okay. So I think in, in the way we've sort of touched on it already, so we've said sort of negative risk and positive risk. Do you think there's something almost slightly oxymoronic to the phrase positive risk? I think to me, I there, think to many little... people, absolutely right. I think yeah. some people just, it doesn't compute. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world, meet people of very, very many different backgrounds and that you know, one of my favorite works, oxymoron, is it, it, they actually can't see it. It is as crazy as you can't have a positive risk. It's, you know, you, 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 don't, you can't, it's not, it's not congruent in anything I understand. So, so, but to others, yeah, they can accept it. So I think therefore maybe using threat and opportunity is better, but po and positive risk is, doesn't compute with many people. Through in where positive risk doesn't compute with many people, do you mean in certain countries that you've traveled in, or certain yeah. sectors, or certain businesses? Yeah. Or, yeah, I think one thing about the English language, as you know, we have many words, I'm not suggesting it applies here to mean many different things, and we seem to be all more willing to accept alternative words for the same thing. So, whether it's a positive risk, an upside risk, or an opportunity, we can sort of live with it. Others, other languages, and other backgrounds and cultures tend to not see it that way so yeah. therefore opportunity probably works better in certain languages than a positive risk so but again should it matter probably not but uh, um i don't know i i'm still thinking about the language for it but nobody wants to change it again 
There's an international standard that calls up opportunities and threats. Yeah. So it's difficult to go back on that now. And it wasn't me or any of my peers who were around when this all started who created that terminology, but we're living with it now. Yeah. Has, has there been any evolution in it since you started your career or has it been, has it sort of been well, static the whole time? When I started, of course, you, exactly what you said, we were looking at the risks as being bad things. And then it sort of came out of, it was the late 90s and I've actually done, I've got a timeline of when, timeline that when the world of project management switched over, it was in the late 90s, it went from risk just being negative to both. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that came out of people looking at SWOT analysis and looking at strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats and starting also to think that good things do happen and it's sometimes you know, it's poor management not to try and maximise the good things that might happen. Ignoring them doesn't improve things. And one of the, I mean, I spoke earlier, you asked me for a definition about looking at opportunities or upside risks and what they are. I don't actually believe they will always make the project earlier, quicker, better. But what they can do is counteract the negative elements of the threats or the downside risks. Yeah. So intuitively managing upside risks should make your ability to finish your project within its objectives better because they swing the pendulum back yeah that makes sense to you yeah no it makes perfect sense i think like you say it's it's not necessarily exploiting opportunities organically to to increase the project's value or whatever it's it's more just battling against the the threats but if you look upon it and Perhaps you've heard me talk about this before. If you've, if you've set a baseline for your project, doesn't matter what that is, and uh, you've identified lots of risks, negative risks, threats, that if any one of them occur would delay your project against that baseline, then if you think about it, the best you're ever going to do is finish on time if you could respond to all those risks. If And statistically, that doesn't happen. You can't. You, so some of them are going to impact you. Then you'll yep. be late so if you want to meet your targets then intuitively you should be looking at good things which will actually draw you back not early not under budget necessarily but on time and on budget fascinating thanks peter so i guess just moving into what we've been discussing then around sort of how it's utilizing projects and, and the life cycle life cycle of a project so do you feel that there are certain points like a, a project sanction for example that once this is passed from a risk perspective, it can only be negative, meaning that I suppose opportunity management can only really be exploited at the front end of a project, if that makes sense. It makes, it makes sense. And while I would say, you know, a bit of me would say, well, that's nonsense. Why can't it apply throughout? What, what my practical or practitioner experience is that when it comes to building those plans, schedules, budgets, performance, whatever it might be, the all the good things that happen tend to be built in so yeah. that the fact they only might happen and the probability is is uh, less than one people assume they're going to happen and therefore they can only get worse and we all know that a lot of uh, objectives i like to call them promises that are made are already optimistic so those of anybody listening to understand um, probabilistics it ends up probably we set our targets at P2, 
10 p20 there's not much room for getting for improvement there things can only get worse yeah so practically opportunity management tends to be, tends to be most relevant during the front end of a project up to that sanction date it should continue but uh, one organization i work with actually has what it calls a no change philosophy no change philosophy past a certain point in its life cycle well opportunities often mean changing something doing something different trying something out um and uh, if you can't change anything you can't try anything else so again it tends to limit its um use okay so you wouldn't say that opportunity management necessarily has like an expiration date or or point in a project it just certainly limits its use as you said i think it it theoretically doesn't have but practically it, it can have okay but i would say it's just as important in the middle of the deployment phase as apm would call it or the execution phase or the delivery phase to look keep looking at things that might happen that you could influence to improve the project amazing so in i suppose my uh, research to this uh, and, and my sort of preparation to this episode peter i think came across and in my career so far, so I've come across value engineering a fair bit. I suppose I'd be interested to hear your thoughts if, if there's a distinction between sort of value engineering and, and upside risk management. There is a, there, there, I think there is a distinction. I have some very good friends who are uh, value managers and involved in value engineering who would argue against that. But uh, I work, my working definition of a risk, which I've alluded to already is something that might happen and I, it's not in any, any of the definitions but it might it might happen by chance so even if you didn't touch it it could happen it might be a very low probability but it could happen yeah and whereas a lot of to me and um, again this may not be how other people see it a lot of value engineering is about making strategic choices and choices to do one thing or another often to save money um, and that may be to do a, use a different technique it may be to use a different material it may be a, a different approach but those choices won't happen generally won't happen by chance it's important though that they are looked at and managed and again to some people they are opportunities opportunity to increase value but it's a choice which is another reason why in some circles, people are liking the idea of a positive risk because it takes you away from the, ch the choice. People know that a risk is uncertain. Yeah. So a positive risk is an uncertain thing that might happen, whereas an opportunity has multi potentially has multiple meanings. And so maybe in value engineering, some people call them opportunities, but they're not things that all happen by chance. Perfect. So that's the important distinction is it happening by chance, essentially, between value engineering. I think it is, but others might disagree. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting if uh, if you are listening to this, uh, feel free to uh, to comment below and, and reach out and let us know your thoughts. Perfect. So I think we've touched on it a, a fair few times, uh, Peter, in terms of like the boilerplate and inverted commas definition of, of a risk in most guides being an uncertain event that if happens could have a positive or negative effect on objectives. So I think from what I've extrapolated, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So are you suggesting that the root of the problem is that we're being driven down the road of risk management of being both positive and negative? And, and secondly, 
off the side of that as a second part of the question, do you feel that we should be isolating opportunity management away from the umbrella of risk management to prevent it falling from the wayside as it historically has been? And if you think there's a time of the change, really? A few years ago when, um, and you, you'll know this, um, an old friend of mine, David Hills, an old in every sense of the word David Hills, no, but <laughs> practical project risk management, the ATOM methodology, this isn't a selling point for that, but ATOM stands for active threat and opportunity management. And throughout the book, we emphasize that the process for threats is the same as the process for opportunities, right down if, until when we assess risks, we can use a probability and impact grid, we just reverse it and it's it's the same, it, you can apply the same thing. Yeah. However, um, and, and this does depend on the industry and I've spent a lot of my time in, in the industries that I sort of suggested to you before, heavy industry, civil construction. Uh, and it's just, just where I spend quite a bit of my time because if you, if you stepped into a room and my personal experience is if you said to a group of people, uh, we're going to have a risk identification session now. I'm not going to say whether I agree with doing it this way anymore, but write down what you think might happen. Inevitably, they'll write down threats. Yep. And to get them to think of opportunities or upsides in that environment is very difficult because it's a mindset. And, and it, it's one of these anchors. You get into it. To break that can be difficult, but not impossible. And uh, my practitioner experiences separate the two don't try and do them together spend time you know maybe start one day look at opportunities another day look at threats but also different people you need different people involved again stereotypes and i hate to use stereotypes engineers safety focused very negative economists on um, marketers always tend to be very uh, positive in that sense and so you'll get different things from different people. And But having said all that, I've carried out risk interventions with non-engineering companies, or might, you might call high new techno, technological entrepreneurial companies. They don't see the negatives. They only see the positives. So there's wow. a happy medium in here. But trying to shoehorn both of them together has to be thought about, and it might depend on the maturity of the organisation to make it work. But separating it, into maybe risk management, using that term, and opportunity management, slightly different facilitation techniques, slightly different look at it, what can it mean, I think has merits. How often, out of interest for your career, have you come across organisations that have done that? And like you say, not just shoehorned opportunities and threats into one risk identification session, but um, ex set out beforehand that we're going to be doing this or we're going to be doing threats or we're going to be doing opportunities? Uh, one organisation did embrace threat and opportunity but always separated them and believed they got a lot of value out of, out of it. Uh, and that, that was a, a, a water utility. I'll, I could tell you more about that as an aside in a minute. But uh, really, it's a handful. It's, it's absolutely a handful. Uh, and as part of my role of the, the current chair of the APM Risk SIG, we in, I've, I've asked people and asked questions like, if I looked at your risk register, how many opportunities would I see on it? And it's five or ten percent. Yeah. Company I alluded to before, when I was working with them, and for a few years after, and I haven't been in touch with them for a couple of years, 
they would tell you they it's probably around 50 50 threats and opportunities on their risk register but that was driven into that they were they were made to do it that they were encouraged by having opportunity sessions where that's all they would do and just to uh, give you a little bit of a aside here when i first started working with them and i was working with a predominantly male audience i wanted to try and get them to think differently and so what i did i got my daughter one of my daughters to go to primark and she bought a box of rose tinted glasses pink sunglasses and you will have heard the, the phrase you need to look at the world through rose tinted have glasses. indeed and i got i was running this session with these predominantly men and I it's I, I, I don't actually remember apart from the co-facilitator there being a, a, a lady present in this doesn't matter but all these men so I said before we start I want you to put on the glasses uh, I do somewhere have pictures of them probably can't really show them because of GDPR but it was quite <laughs> hilarious and uh, set them away and within an hour we had identified many many opportunities good things that might happen on their on their projects which would be beneficial anyway i i, I didn't go up there for a while and i got a phone call from the uh the, my contact and she said peter you're never gonna guess what happened and i said what she said i was just gonna start the opportunity workshops and uh, one of the guys said we can't do this why so we haven't got the glasses <laughs> And uh, so she said, well, pretend you've got them on. And then they all did that Biggles impression where they put that. They said, no, it doesn't work quite the same. But yeah. it's, it was a joke, but it's it's all about um, changing your, your your point of reference. It makes you think differently. And and it worked for them. And, uh, and it was working for them and probably is still working for them to change that mindset. But they split the two. They no, I yeah, no, I love that. I think, um, I guess a lot of these questions for me are coming from at the start, start of my career, how I can approach these things moving forward. Like, I think I've thought in the past that it'd be, is it almost like flogging a dead horse? Like you say, when you've got threats and opportunities in the same workshop and obviously be only being in the profession for, for 12 months or so, I've not spoken to that many people to, or worked in that many organizations to understand how they do, how they go about it, whether they, I don't know if silo is the right word, but they separate it into two separate things. Well, no, I love that little anecdote. That was uh, that was brilliant. Do you know if anybody's used that tactic since, or have you used it? Well, since? I do. I do have a box somewhere of rose tinted glasses, but it's it's um, it was just to say that came from work I've done with a, a, an old friend of mine who's in value management and value engineering, and they use he used to use lots of props. Yeah, whether it was the Bono six thinking hats and putting people with different color baseball hats on to make people think differently. So it's it's in in facilitation there are many ways to go and get people to break the mold to think differently and the rose tinted glasses seem to work for them love that definitely say made a note I've, I've mentioned on a previous podcast peter that i'm still yet to run a risk workshop face to face i've only ever done it virtually so having as many facilitation techniques up my sleeve as i can I think won't go amiss well you know actually face to face is different in the sense that people can be biased by them sometimes it's probably easier you might get you'll get certainly a different level of of let's say quality in a virtual it might actually be better and i've actually used virtual historically in preference to face-to-face -face because some of the biases are are not um prevalent prevalent oh, really with someone so yeah 
that's fascinating. Yeah, I've spoke to a couple of people that have said that they found it um, slightly more difficult doing virtually because you can't like read body language. You can only see the face and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but you also can't see when someone's laughing at you or, or or doing some sort of mimicking you when you've said something they think's crazy. Because then, so it it may give a better way of free of people speaking their mind. Anyway, that's that's an aside, of course. Love that, brilliant. So I guess just to wrap things up, then Peter. Let's answer the question, does upside risk management exist or is it futile? And I know you said this is a constant battle with yourself. It does exist. And I do do think it's worthwhile. One thing I haven't said is one of the other companies I know that I worked with who did it very well was where finishing early made a huge difference. So there are some, some areas where it doesn't matter. Finishing on time is what you want, but if you finished early, it's not going to make any difference at all because you can't start a railway service any earlier. You can't do this. So, but there are sectors, especially when it's a, when someone else is trying to steal your market, that if you get to market a day earlier, a month earlier, you're going to make more money because that market doesn't go on forever. So I do think there is plenty of um, room to make this work. However, I think some people who don't, some companies I work with who don't do it properly, because they throw it into the mix of threat management, I, I feel that they don't do their threat management as well as they could. Because the opportunity management, which they don't take seriously, is a distraction. And I've told more than one organization, and it's, it, it, is, it doesn't mean to sound condescending, for the level of maturity that you're at at this point in time, just focus on the threats. When you've got that under control, we'll bring in the opportunity side of it later because it's a distraction for you yeah. at the moment. So I don't know if that sort of answers the question. I, you know, I do believe it, but that then also comes back into should it be under the one process? Should there be one book about it or should we look at it separately and get the best out of both? No, definitely. I think uh, when, when I was loading up to ask that question, I think in the, the conversation we've had previously, you sort of mentioned that you're still umming and ahhing internally, whether it's whether it's futile or not. So, uh, no, it's not futile. It's, 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 it, I, I can see its benefits, but if you've already been given an objective that is already very difficult to achieve, how on earth can you improve it? That's what people would say. If you've already... but. Don't forget those may be the things that save you because you've found a way of overcoming a delay by looking at the opportunity. You might be able to do something else to recover that. Bear in mind, it's not a choice. Yeah, I think there is there is mileage. Fantastic, Peter. Well, is, is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you'd like to sort of raise from, from an upside risk management perspective? Would you feel like we've covered all bases there? No, I think we've I think we've covered everything. Perfect. So as I always do, Peter, um, I think it's really a useful part of the podcast. If you could give yourself a piece of advice when you were at the start of your career that you know now that you didn't know then, what would that piece of advice be? There are, well, I think I was going to say there are some wise men in the world and you should listen to them. When I was uh, your age, Pat, and actually until I was about 40, so that's a good years ago, I was arrogant People might say I'm still arrogant, but worse, where I would, <laughs> I didn't believe I could be told anything. And reading books about something was, why would I do that? Then it was almost an epiphany where I, I started reading some books and realised there's a lot of wisdom out there. 
And even though some people may be old, in the t- you shouldn't ignore them because, and that's it. So, and I suppose it is, there are wise people listen to them. Don't, don't decry anybody old. It's easy for me to say, I'm the old person now. But <laughs> I, was, I wish I'd listened more when I was your age, Pat. Brilliant. No, that, well, to be honest with you, Pete, that's exactly why I've made an effort to start this podcast to sort of try and share from the wisdoms of, of people who, I guess, are, are further down the line in their career. I was going to say slightly older, but I'm sure they wouldn't thank me for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so that's, that's sound advice, Peter. Thank you. Um, and then just very last point, if anybody wants to get in touch to, to ask anything about with anything we discussed in the podcast or, or at all things APM or, or anything to do with your own business, what would be the best way to get in touch? Well, LinkedIn, of course, is an easy one. I'm on there like most people are. But if it is something to do with APM, then go to the APM um, website, find the risk SIG, and then they I can be contacted officially through the APM risk SIG as chair of the APM risk Fantastic. No problem. Well, I'll um I'll pop it a link to your uh, LinkedIn page in the in the podcast notes, and also a, a copy of the link to the APM page as well for anybody who's keen to get in touch. But um, but yeah, Peter, thanks so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. It's been a, been a really brilliant discussion, and hopefully our listeners have enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks a lot, Pat. No worries, Peter. Take care. All the best. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time, where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.